Welcome to Tech Breakfast, today's top headlines served hot by your host Aaron Bewley and Tyler Gates. So grab your coffee and let's get into it. Good morning. It's Monday, October 12th. Today on the show, we have Paul Brarin back for another visit. He is a Dell EMC advisory engineer and the proprietor of Tinkertry.com, as well as an avid technologist. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you so much. What a way to start a Monday morning. <laughs> this is fun. Starting strong. I don't, I don't have enough <laughs> coffee in my veins yet, I don't think. No, it's pretty good. Good snuggles from my kids, and uh, it just slowed everything down for all the right reasons. Yeah, I've got my <laughs> daughter just yelling at me constantly as you're doing the intro, so that's my jolt of coffee <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> Bring her on the show. Bring her on the show. Uh, no. Okay, so before we jump right into the news, uh, there were some interesting things uh, historically on October 12th that uh, we uncovered, I found out that Steve Jobs introduced the next computer with uh, Steve Wozniak. I guess it was uh, Steve's company um, that, or sorry, Wozniak's company that Jobs I was about to say, I was like, wait Apple. a minute. I was like, wait, that's confusing, yeah. And uh, it was ahead of its time, which I, I think we touch on those topics a lot, but it had some, uh, some pretty advanced features uh, like optical storage disks and uh, some signal processing that allowed voice recognition. Um, but it, it had a steep price tag in 1997 of $6,500, which sounds like entirely too many Walkman. <laughs> I, I, feel so, like, I have a feeling that may have contributed to it. Uh, maybe either one of you know, sad. did that thing ever work? Because uh, I feel like at its demo, I know that it didn't work. <laughs> I don't know if he ever actually got it completely off the ground before, I, I guess, Apple maybe reacquired him or something. I, I don't know if it ever worked. Maybe it I don't did. know. Maybe I don't, someone on Twitter know. knows. Paul, you know that one? Are you familiar with the next computer and, and the saga that was that apparently short-lived project? <laughs> yeah, actually, one of my first jobs was in IT at the help desk at Cornell University. And the uh, Cornell had the largest install of Next computers in the entire world. So a little night. Oh, wow. Okay, a little, so, so they yeah, worked. A little yeah, 90s thing, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> that's cool. But that's, that's about a all super fun fact, yeah. Um, Were they good? That, that is curious. I didn't get to use one myself. And I heard many years yeah. later he was on campus and all that. This is, uh, you know, history was unfolding, but I had no idea. I was just at the help desk. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, that's, that's classic, too. It's right around the corner. Somebody's doing something phenomenal. It's like, no, I was just eating at the cafeteria. <laughs> they were discovering particles at the linear accelerator next door. Well, we were, we're looking at Mosaic web browser. I remember that day. The very first moment of looking at the browser. Within a month, we had all the students, uh, you know, library card catalog on HTML. Pretty cool. So yeah, did you, early, early did 90s. you recognize yes. how big of a deal that was at the time? I think, I think we kind of did. Three or four of us standing there. I was doing That's OS2 awesome. stuff and um, looking over someone's shoulder. Hey, come look at this. And I think we probably all remember that moment. That's like, awesome. uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And you had no firewalls. You were on Ethernet at work. You could just firewalls go right really to the, super fast. I think go right to the IP address. It's fine. Yep. <laughs> 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 All right. What do we have today? What do you guys want to jump into? Oh, gosh. We have a bunch of different things here. Uh, I see this. Uh, Microsoft is bringing the xCloud service to iOS, which originally, I don't know if you guys saw kind of the ups and downs of that. Initially, it was just like, we aren't going to support this because you are not able to individually certify the games that are on this cloud streaming service, this cloud gaming service. 
And so, it, you know, Amazon announced theirs. I think we actually talked about that briefly for a little bit, Luna. And they actually support iOS, and everyone was wondering how in the world are they doing that. And they did it with a PWA, so a progressive web app. And it hmm. looks like uh, Microsoft, after working with Apple, and I think Google also did the same, where Apple said, it's cool, you can actually do cloud streaming as long as you make an individual app for every single game. <laughs> that is on your streaming service. That would be like asking Netflix oh my gosh, to make an what? individual app for every movie. Yeah, that was what that was the request <laughs> from Apple was to literally make an individual app for every single one and submit them individually for approval. Wow. And obviously mm -hmm. that's a non sequitur. Uh, but if you can do it as a progressive web app, uh, just inside of the browser, then they, it's fine. And that's exactly what Amazon did, and I'm pretty sure Amazon just showed the way uh, for for Microsoft and for Google. And, and Microsoft's announced it. Google hasn't. I'm, I'm assuming Google will do the same in the near future to get it on iOS devices, which has kind of been a big rub. You know, people, tons of people, myself included, I have an iPad, um, and it, these services don't work on there. And it's like that's a perfect platform for for something like that to work on. So uh, it's good to see that they're able to get around that using just regular web technologies instead of building an app, which seems like it was going to make a lot of sense uh, when all this first started. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, a kind of huge development overtaking or overcoming of a hurdle there. Is, that it, is it as big as it sounds technically to have kind of worked their way around that? Well, I, you know, if you if you were on PC, so I will tell you this. This is the first time I've heard of a PWA on a mobile device. I, I didn't know that that was a thing. I will tell you that I do use pr progressive web apps on, on other devices, in particular inside of Linux. So that's a very common way to use a, an application that doesn't have a native app, but they have a web app, is to turn it into a progressive web app. And it, it feels a little bit more native. It doesn't feel like you're working inside of a browser necessarily. So I, I, I don't know if technically it's a massive accomplishment. I, I really cannot speak on that. But I can say that this is becoming much more common for multi-platform types of applications that primarily mm. run you know, over the internet. And so this is really not surprising to see, other than, like I said, the, the standpoint that they actually are a PWA. What I'm interested in is whether or not you can actually purchase, if you can purchase the games inside of these applications because if it's not going uh, through the store then it may i'm assuming it doesn't have to adhere to any form of you know ios payment policy to purchase Ooh, the games yes, and, I, and i'm willing to bet that the if they get these on there, there yeah exactly i'm wondering if that's going to maybe spur apple to be like you know what maybe it's cool if you go ahead and just move it into the the app store on a single app Man, that would actually be really curious too if if they do get around sort of the marketplace rules um, by doing this. Uh, it makes Epic's battle with Apple look pretty silly because yeah, it, it will definitely come I, up for sure. I lost the notes because uh, I think I just caught this when I was scrolling late at night. But apparently, Epic has given up a ton of users on Fortnite um, because of this this tiff that they kind of started actually i have that one 73 million ios yeah. users in order to Holy fight against cow. apple yeah. i don't even think i read that right because 73 million sounds bigger today <laughs> and to, to make it relative i think uh i think they have 300 or 350 million users total Ooh. across all platforms so so that's, that's like a fairly that's like decent a quarter almost yeah 
Yep, it's three fifty. You're right, Business Insider. Jeez. It's a little less than a quarter, but that is a that's an insane number of users to get. It up is over an absolutely obviously they see users. some money in it, uh, and it'll be neat to see how that all unfolds. You got any thoughts on that one, Paul? What do you, what do you think about Fortnite and Epic with Apple and all of the uh, just app store, you know, sort of scrutiny that that all these big tech companies are going through right now? Yeah, I think it's a tough road ahead. Uh, you definitely can alienate your users who like you. And now if you kind of hurt your brand there, uh, people don't know if they want to demonize Apple or Fortnite or it's tricky. Um, I feel like no one likes either one of them right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> you're, you're both jerks. Just make this easy and stop charging us more. <laughs> I mean, it is about money. That's how it usually is. So oh, yeah. how it'll land, who knows? You could kind of see it coming with all those years with Apple getting that share, but just to say you're a big guy and you can get away with this, and then lawyers maybe saying maybe not. I don't know. Hmm. We'll have to see. Well, let's let's pivot to some of the darker side of tech news real quick, and then uh, we'll probably hit some of the fun stuff. Darker side of tech news. I feel oh, like no. every, we every time we have a conversation, we end up talking about um, vulnerabilities and breaches and stuff like that. Nope. And uh, I saw a few stories. This morning, that would I thought would be fun to link together. Um, one was Visa and J.P. Morgan are already prepping for quantum cyber attacks, and that's that topic for me is super interesting because it came up a lot in the um, the crypto mining space as well because a lot of crypto coins started making claims about being ASIC resistant, which I believe is is pretty common at this point. And that just means dedicated circuits that draw, you know, do gigaflops of calculations and things like that were kind of messing up the way the economy was designed to work. So they started building resistance into it. But then also the idea of a mutable blockchain and things like that, cryptoga- uh, cryptographic computers um, or, or quantum computers were potentially going to be able to disrupt those blockchains. So they started right. discussing it pretty actively. Uh, this is the first time, at least in a while, that I've seen sort of a prominent financial institution in the news about sort of uh, designing against uh, crypto, quantum crypto cryptography, which uh, is is just sort of another escalation in that space, right? Yeah, I've I've seen this a couple times of well, I, that's not true. I've seen this a couple times where there has been the concern. Mm. Um where people are, are wondering about, you know, especially as we get closer and closer to doing something functional with quantum computers, the immediate thought is is what negative can come of this and the thought process is and it's not unfounded. I mean, oftentimes, you know, bad actors are well ahead of us on the ways we leverage technology. Uh, it's like, how can we immediately break a system of security? And uh, this has been talked about a lot. I, I am curious, maybe that one of the two of you know, has it been proven? Like, do we know, has anyone actually been able to break cryptography uh, using, you know, a quantum computer, even in research? I, if, I don't know if, if it's not, been done yet. If I'm not mistaken, the answer, the answer is yes, but it, it doesn't, the, the number of qubits required to break like current current public key cryptography is mm-hmm. is not there yet right so we've talked about quantum computers a couple of times and they've got 8 16 bit i think is the highest i've seen so far and 16 might actually be a stretch but um 
they, I think researchers are actually estimating that it'll take a 250 million qubit uh, system to break current publicly cryptography. Um, and so, so I think there's a way to go there, but the threat is real um, because it just ends up being math. Yeah, for sure. No, it's good to see that we're trying to get ahead of it. That's for sure. Yeah, looking here, it looks like uh, by 2023, IBM has their qubit device of uh, 1,000 plus. So not even, you know, we're still a ways out. But yeah, hovering up, or sorry, uh, hoovering up all this data and keeping it for the year you can break it open. Crypto, yeah. that's that's the concern, right? Yeah, um, and actually reading through the article, it's interesting because one of the things it's saying is basically that they're they're developing processes if nothing else right now, to identify the data that most critically needs to be protected against these new methods as they become more available, right? So some of this is just saying, all right, it's going to happen eventually. Everything's encrypted today. We have so much data, we can't very well make it all, you know, anti-quantum. Um, so what what is our means of protecting the stuff first, uh, that's going to to keep us like safer, longer sort of stuff. Sure. So, and Paul, what was that thing about IBM? You said were they going to have something available by 2023? You were saying, or yeah, looking at a roadmap. Um, I should disclose I had the honor of working there for 21 years, and um, I just look at the roadmap here on a public website. Scaling, they're going to have a product in 2023, is what they're saying here. Wow. Uh, some right pictures and everything. Yeah, yeah, some pictures oh, of it. Yeah, a 1,000 plus qubit device called IBM yeah. Quantum Condor, targeted for the end of 2023. But they have one now at 65. It gives you an idea. There's a little scaling chart. In yeah. There. Okay. Yep. So, so that's there's me not paying attention to the industry enough. Obviously, you scaled a lot past the you know eight and 16 space. If we're already yeah. up in the 60s, so you can see they're they're moving quickly. Uh, obviously, they're making these things stable. That's fascinating. That by 2023, they're expecting a a commercial device with a thousand plus qubits in it. That's that's pretty cool. That's but it, coming it certainly quick. opens up some cans of worms. <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, it is the end of 2020 currently, so we're we're pretty close. Uh, yeah, that's. I think that's right around the corner. Yeah, that we de definitely have to start getting ready for this. Uh, oh wow! It actually shows. They say in 2023 we will debut a 1,121 qubit. IBM. So they're they're rounding Very down specific. actually ah. with the the 1000 number which is pretty crazy. Yeah, wow. Yeah, a I little more quickly the qubit packing scales in those systems. You know, was it is, is it something like, you know, memory blocks, right? I mean, 32 64 128 sort of scaling or is it uh, different? You have to add two at a time that sort of stuff. I honestly don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, near term we I have know ransomware on the, and maybe getting prosecuted if you just uh, pay the ransom. So that's getting interesting. U.S. Department really? of Treasury. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's double click on that. <laughs> so, so bleeping computer, October 1st, saying U.S. government warning of sanction risk for facilitating ransomware payments. So that gets tricky because you have insurance companies wow. others right now protecting you know schools and so forth mm -hmm. and hospitals. So I think that space is uh, kind of coming to a head there too, how to handle it. It's tricky. Yeah, that that is that's very interesting, and uh, I haven't read this yet. But it, so the the way that law is being written, they're saying that if you pay the ransom, you may be at risk of having well broken the law. So that that's just paying into a system. It's kind of like negotiating with terrorists. 
Yeah, I'm not fully up on it yet. It looks like the story's still unfolding. I've actually heard about it on This Week in Tech they've been discussing as well. So it looks like it might be threats for now. Um, but if that's the way we're headed, that could be uh, that could definitely change things for. Oh, yeah. I guess nope. I get it. I mean, they're they're yeah. probably thinking to themselves: if no one pays, then bad actors will stop doing it. Uh, exactly. And, you know. Yeah, there's, maybe there's, that's there's... true. If they find another avenue to make money, I just feel like <laughs> oh. I just feel like they're going to do a couple of these scenarios where it's like, well, cool, we'll just do it anyways, and then we just won't ever unlock your data. And let's right. see how strong your law your laws hold up then. Yeah, let's see how that works. Yeah. Especially if it's a, a tied to government, right? Uh, interesting. So there there's a quote here kind of at the top of this article and it just outright sort of establishes what the position is is companies that facilitate ransomware payments to cyber actors on behalf of victims including financial institutions cyber insurance firms and companies involved in digital forensics and incident response not only encourage future ransomware payment demands but also may risk violating OFAC regulations so that is straight up don't facilitate those payments in in a mitigation effort or or you may be running afoul of these uh regulations that's very interesting that that is going to bring i think a lot of probably ugly news to to a head because ransomwares are uh, or attacks which are made public i feel almost daily at this point uh they're they're everywhere like yep. a lot of prominent corporations are having these issues if i would be shocked to find that m- at a good percentage of them didn't just fork over some amount of payment so that they could get to decrypting and moving on. Um, that this would be a huge issue for daily operations in a lot of those companies if they couldn't get past the the breach status. That's that's interesting. Well, maybe this is just another thing that gets people to focus better on security and user education i don't i don't know it's like if if they're not because they're i mean basically what that says is is there will be no recourse to get your data back if it happens so you're basically right in a way you're being punished for poor security practices and then the what i what i view as the real personal problem is you know not educating your users on on the appropriate behavior which is oftentimes user behavior is usually what leads to ransomware attacks right like just yeah, the, yeah, la- the lack of understanding what to do and what not to do and look we're no one's perfect cuz like my company tests us on this regularly and I, and I, I actually find it kind of fun i'm like oh i'm going to catch this attack here this time and i'm like i'm going to i'm going to flag this email or whatever and then i'll get like three emails from our security team that says quit flagging appropriate emails <laughs> and so i'm overly <laughs> cautious on it and then at the same time have accidentally clicked on one where they're like you need to take security training now so it's it's hard to get to get all of it down but we need to be making the effort and i know a lot of businesses aren't you know it's that's a something to be watching out for is, is make sure you're not only taking the right, you know, technology and procedural security measures, but also work on education of the workforce. It's just incredibly critical to this entire thing. That's interesting too, because I I know this has come up in, in my circles, in conversations that we have naturally as a, a VMware employee, I work with corporations that are always trying to protect against this stuff. And, and now with our security portfolio, of course, we're a lot more involved in those conversations as well whether it's mitigation, prevention, um, all, of, all of the sort of pieces. But um, what was what's curious uh, as I talk to peers kind of across 
the globe is that in in a few situations, if not often, the the breach itself has sort of multiple potential financial impacts, right? You've got uh, inability to conduct business. Obviously, you can take some percentage of revenue. You probably back that out and you can see that that, well, that one hurts a lot. So if you're down, you're usually in a bad place. You've got um, the data, right? Whatever may have been exfiltrated, for instance, uh, could be loss of IP. Um, it could just be uh, future threats are more likely to, to happen as a result. Um, and then you've got potential loss of data, right? So if it was encrypted and you couldn't recover it or you couldn't recover it in, in a timely manner, then, then you may also lose dollars and cents on that sort of stuff. But one of the other ones is just reputation, right? So if, let's say you have public-facing data, uh, your systems were breached, it comes out in the news, it's somehow made public, uh, you make it public, and that has an impact to just, you know, say, stock price, right? What's What's been interesting to me, though, is that a lot of those companies that come out with these very public, like, we got breached, and it's ugly, you know, X hundred thousand users, right, millions of users, those sorts of things, there isn't always a profound public reputation-based financial impact here. And if you can't add all of those things up, or if, or if you don't, or if you can get around back into transacting quickly, and maybe you've got a good backup, then paying a ransom for a few things might be cheaper than actually securing your systems. That's definitely something that people consider. And yeah. Uh, you know, of course, it's. I guess it is relative because you don't always know what the bad actors are going to be charging. Right. Uh, yes, that's so. <laughs> true. And and sometimes I remember the stories early on. I wonder if uh, and if anybody knows, it'd be kind of interesting to hear about this. But um, early on, I remember ransomware actors were just infecting computers and whatever they got into, whatever system they got into, they would they take a quick look at it. They make a phone call, get somebody on the phone, and look for a credit card that could get swiped. Right. But they were indiscriminate, whether it was your grandma and her laptop or, like, your local super hospital. And they had no idea what they had on the end of the hook, right? So sure. they, they could have a whale, but they'd be asking for, you know, $1,000. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have a feeling they're a little more sophisticated now. They're probably aware when they know that you've got, you know, a gajillion systems as opposed to a single laptop or something along those lines. I would but imagine so at this point. I, I imagine there were some pretty big misses early on, which is good, but funny. Well, we have about two minutes left, unfortunately. Oh, no. So yeah. is there anything else we explicitly want to cover before we got to get running? I feel like Paul's going to give us a quick have, update on Paul EV. Back on. Yeah, yeah. Paul, tell tell us what's up with Tesla, man. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah, even in the last week alone, there's been uh, a bunch of news. Um, one is just some little refreshes to the Model Three, which came out in 2017, small volumes. 2018, by the end of 2018, a little larger volumes, and then finally, there's now I think over half a million of them on the road. So that's mass production, right? Uh, okay. Tesla's trying to ramp up to 500 million vehicles a year and beyond. They're building a factory in Germany called Giga, uh, Gigafactory Berlin. Another one uh, in China, adding to the facility there to make Model Ys in China as well. And then finally, Texas. So that, that's kind of the big news that's going on for the last month or two. In the last week, the product refresh would be, you've got people um, watching Tesla's every move. Even the Model 3, they continue to try to crank up efficiency. Awesome. Even taking 19-inch wheels and slightly smoothing them for an extra 1% boost. So now you can list on your EPA ratings, potentially, you know, the cheapest thing you can do is change the shape of the aluminum on a 19-inch wheel. So those little things just definitely appeals to, appeals to nerds, right? They just keep 
pushing, keep pushing, even though they're quite ahead technically in many ways, especially on efficiency, you know, the most sure. efficient vehicle. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of exciting stuff. And then you got Elon really? saying some stuff on Twitter that kind of hurts it all. So, you, you know, you got the PR <laughs> pluses and minuses. So the personal feeling, but let, let me just finish with this thought. If you're shopping for a car, I would encourage you to test drive for sure, no matter what. And if it's like a Chevy Bolt where they're begrudgingly making it and they've, well, you can't even get them in it. They're suspending a lot of the vehicles where companies like GM and others made compliance vehicles. So what does that tell you about the company's seriousness about moving that direction? Do you really want to invest in them because Elon said something that pissed you off in a weekend? Yeah, I don't know. It's tough, right? So just think about that. Like every <laughs> humans have flaws. They absolutely do. And I'm not excusing or an apologist. Um, but the technology is what's exciting. Like you said in your previous right. podcast. It, give me give me your hot take on this, uh, both of you. So scale from one to 10, how exciting is the news that Alphabet's all fully automated uh, driving or self-driving vehicle unit uh, via by, or by means of Waymo is releasing two years ahead of schedule, fully automated taxis in a chunk of Phoenix. Roscoe. I feel like I am much more on the lines of I would be comfortable with it baking for an additional two years as opposed to releasing early. I don't care how confident they are. So uh, that's that's my initial reaction to that. How about you, Paul? Yeah, they have a discrete area in Phoenix that so can map it. So their confidence is high. So I'm, you know, Kind of cool with that, but is that scalable is the question. Tesla's taking a completely different approach. Only time will tell uh, how that plays out. Well, I, for one, hope they're both successful, but uh, I did think that was interesting news. Russ, I'm with you. I wonder how much of this is just we got to get out there and get some some big public wins, but uh, hopefully it's not moving too fast and causes them to, to delay in the long run. For sure. Yeah. Well, Paul, thanks for the perspective. Thanks for joining us today. This has been awesome, as always, and uh, we're going to let you back to your Monday. But that's it, folks. That brings another Tech Breakfast podcast to a close. It's been fun. We hope you enjoyed it. If you got any news that we missed, let us know. If you'd like to join us on the show, please do. We love having guests on the show. And we will see you guys tomorrow, actually. We're doing a little bit of out of sorts this week while Aaron's out of town. So we're going to have another episode on Tuesday and then again on Wednesday. Peace, everybody. Have a good one. Later.